Someone asked me this morning if I was prepared. I don't ever feel prepared. (laughs) So, God helping me, we'll look at this passage together. The larger part of this passage, we're going to look at uh, a brief phrase in the seventh verse of Isaiah 53, but I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 9 and This section of the prophecy of Isaiah is actually the larger part of a fourth of the four servant psalms of Isaiah, which on another occasion would certainly be an interesting uh, study as well. But let's look at, as I read the first nine verses of Isaiah 53, hear the word of the true and living God. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded, For our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people He was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray for God's blessing upon the ministry of this word. Let us pray. Our Father, if ever in our own experience, we feel it appropriate to take the shoes from off our feet because the place where we stand is holy ground. It is surely when we open this, your blessed book, and begin to read of the sufferings of this one 
whom Isaiah describes elsewhere in his prophecy as traveling in the greatness of his strength. This one who speaks in righteousness, mighty to save, even our Lord Jesus Christ. Though, Lord, I tremble before your word in the fear of not marking it right, and so all of us cried together that you would be pleased to send forth the spirit of truth, that he would come, arrest, and captivate our attention and fix our gaze upon this lamb led to the slaughter, even the lamb of God who went there willingly and resolutely in order to bear away the sin of the world. We ask in his name. Amen. One of the most moving aspects of the sufferings of Christ is when he was tried and falsely accused. He never once opened his mouth in self-defense. Now, if you would, just put yourself, in these few moments, put yourself in his place, dragged before a puppet court, listening to one witness after another lie about you, and then finally receiving the sentence of death, how would you respond in such a situation as that? Would you remain silent before such a travesty of justice? And yet of Jesus, it is said, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Now by the twice repeated phrase in verse 7, he opened not his mouth. This particular verse in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah draws our attention to our Lord's silent submission to the sufferings he endured in the procuring of our salvation. And I would just refer you to the insert in the bulletin for the points I want to cover. In the first place, I'd like for you to consider with me this prophetic description or this prophetic statement that is given to us in verse 7 of Isaiah 53. Look at it. In the previous verses, verses 4 through 6, the emphasis of the prophecy of Isaiah falls, you'll notice, upon the activity of the Father in smiting and afflicting the Son when the Son was in the posture of our sin-bearer. The emphasis falls upon what the Son, the suffering servant of Isaiah, endured at the hands of his father when he was bearing our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, literally has made to light or strike upon him the iniquity of us all. 
But the question is, in what posture did our Lord bear this bruising of His Father? When Jehovah bruises Him and puts Him to grief in the language of verse 10, what is the disposition of the bruised one? When Jehovah causes our iniquities to light upon him and pours out upon his suffering servant the unleashed fury and righteous judgment for sins vicariously born. What is the inward posture and disposition of the suffering servant of Jehovah? Well, in the prophetic statement given to us, it is clear that his inward disposition was one of silent, voluntary submission to all that he must undergo in the procuring of our salvation. And therefore, the prophecy focuses upon this voluntary submission by twice underscoring the fact that he opened not his mouth. In spite of great oppression, in spite of manifold affliction, he opened not his mouth. He is then set before us under the imagery of a lamb led to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So in the prophetic description or statement given to us, the particular aspect and focus in verse 7, I repeat, is our Lord's silent, voluntary submission to all that He must undergo in the procuring of our salvation. But then I want you to notice with me, more importantly, perhaps, the historic fulfillment recorded. Where in the record of the sufferings of Christ is Isaiah 53 and verse 7 fulfilled? Well, a good case could be made for the fact that it was fulfilled in the general disposition of silent submission throughout the entirety of everything which transpired from Gethsemane to Golgotha. But I do believe that there is a peculiar and a very focused emphasis in the gospel records in which we find the historic fulfillment of Isaiah 53 verse 7 recorded in connection with our Lord's threefold trial. Once our Lord was taken from Gethsemane, He appeared before the Jewish Sanhedrin court, then before Pilate, then before Herod, and then back to Pilate, and then on from there to Golgotha. And it's very interesting that in each one of those appearances before the Sanhedrin, before Pilate, and before Herod, the gospel writers are guided by the Holy Spirit to focus upon our Lord's silence. But silence, you'll notice, in a very limited and specific context. Turn with me in your own Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 26.
For the first instance of, he opened not his mouth. In Matthew 26, beginning with verse 57, we have the record of our Lord's appearance before the Sanhedrin in the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. Peter is outside in the court. It says of him that he sat with the servants to see the end. Verse 58, now verse 59 of Isaiah 26. The chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Here is this puppet court not waiting for true witnesses to come forward that they might make a right judgment, but already committed in their hearts to put him to death. Having already paid Judas his 30 pieces of silver, having already sent out the Roman guard to apprehend our Lord and gone out there and laid hold of the Lord Jesus. All the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. This was no true trial. It was nothing but a kangaroo court, a mockery of justice. It was held to give some semblance of the appearance of justice. But there was no justice there. And though all the council sought false testimony against Jesus, we read that they found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. He opened not his mouth. Then when we turn to his appearance before Pilate, we find the same emphasis. If you would, turn with me to Mark 15. The 15th chapter of Mark's Gospel. This is the historic fulfillment of the prophetic description of Isaiah 53, 7. He opened not his mouth. Look at Mark 15 beginning with verse 1. Immediately in the morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Now he's before not the Jewish ecclesiastical court, but the Roman civil court. Then Pilate asked him, verse 2, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, It is as you say. Yes, he opened his mouth when it came to speaking the truth about his own identity. Are you the king of the Jews? It is as you say. And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered them nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. He opened 
not his mouth. We're at the precise point when all of the false accusations from the mouths of lying false witnesses were being hurled into his face. There's a lot of good, sound, indeed profound theology wrapped up in the language of that old Negro spiritual. He never said a mumbling word. Not a word. Not a word. He never said a mumbling word. He opened not his mouth. At what point? Notice the emphasis of Scripture. At the point of the accumulated pressure of false witness when lie after lie were being spoken to him in his very hearing. And then before Herod, when Pilate sends him up to Herod, and for this, if you would, turn with me to Luke 23. You'll notice the same emphasis. He opened not his mouth, Luke 23, verses 8 through 12. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. People are no different today. Somebody promises a miracle, everybody shows up, fascinated by a show of The supernatural, hoping to see maybe the moon play leapfrog with the sun. (sighs) Then he questioned him, verse 9, with many words. But he answered him, nothing. Before Herod, he never says a mumbling word. Not a word. Not a word. He never says a mumbling word. And can you imagine what this must have meant to our Lord. Think of it, those of you among us who have sought to act with integrity and uprightness in a given area. And in that very area, someone either misconstrues or deliberately lie about you. What happens to your imperfectly sanctified spirit When you must listen to a false accusation, a lie about something you did or said that denigrates your Christian integrity, you feel abused in the highest sense. Well, think what it must have meant for the holy, sinless soul of the Son of God to have this heap of garbage, of concocted lies made of the filth of men's murderous hearts thrown shovel after shovel into his face. And he never said a mumbling word. He answered nothing. Led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It was the silent submission of the Lamb of God going to the slaughter of Golgotha to bear away the sin of the world. Now we've looked at the prophetic statement given. We've considered the historic fulfillment recorded. We've looked at three different sections in the gospel records. What is the practical significance of all of this? 
Well, in opening up the practical significance, let me do so under two headings, with reference to our Lord and with reference to us. First of all, with reference to our Lord. It underscores in the first place, I think in broad, clear terms, it underscores the total voluntariness of his death on our behalf. Though, as we've indicated, it must have deeply vexed his holy soul to be confronted with wicked lies and half-truths, his own words twisted, as it were, and made into rusty daggers to be thrust into his holy soul. His silence amazes Jew and Gentile leader alike because it set out in bold relief our Lord's other and total self-possession. He was self-possessed. He could not be prodded or provoked into making a rash response. He was in absolute possession of all of the emotions and faculties of his own soul as he stood in total self-possession so that they could not goad him enough into defending himself, into justifying himself, into hurling invectives into the faces of his accusers. He speaks before this heathen potentate with reference to the fact that he has no power but that which is given to him of God. But when it comes to speaking words of self-justification, words of condemnation upon others, or whimpering, sniveling pleas for protection from them, he never said a mumbling word. He opened not his mouth. Why? Because our Lord was in total self-possession of all of his faculties as he moved to the cross. Because he was moving to the cross in the disposition of other self-giving. And if he had no self-possession, it would not be self-giving but fully possessed of all of his faculties, he restrains from any self-justification. As Peter puts it, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. And though he could have justly called the wrath of his father down upon those who dared to lie about his incarnate son, he opens not his mouth. So with reference to our Lord, his silence that amazed Jew and Gentile leader alike points to, highlights, underscores the total self-possession in the path of total self-giving that he might be the Lamb of God to bear away the sin of the world. For he had said prior to these incidents, John chapter 10, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command, 
I have received from my Father. And therefore he lets these accusations be heaped upon him. Why? Because he's not going to the cross ultimately under the pressure of valid allegations. No. He's going to the cross in voluntary submission to the will of his Father thirsting for your salvation and for mine. That's what it tells us at least in some little measure with reference to our Lord. But what does it say with reference to us? Well, this is what it says to us. The silent, willing submission of the Lord Jesus is that is the posture in which He secured our redemption. He had to be willing to take upon Himself all of the false accusations in the process of going to the cross where He who knew no sin would become sin for us. Go to the cross in which Isaiah 53 and verse 6 would be fulfilled when our sins would be transferred to Him. And he would be bruised and he would be punished and he would taste the very pangs of hell in his own soul as we read about in our affirmation of faith this morning, causing him to open his mouth upon the cross with that plaintive cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so with reference to us, it tells us that here is this one who willingly submitted to all of the injustice and indignity that he might procure the redemption of a vast multitude of sinners who recognizing that in themselves they are guilty and defiled and no false witness, dear people, would need to be brought from the court of men or from the court of heaven to have us all justly condemned to hell. All God God need do is let the facts loose in any given moment. And there would be enough to have the whole moral universe rise up and say, hell is the only rightful place for that man, for that woman, For that boy, for that girl. And Jesus knew that. And so he stands and willingly, quietly submits to all the false accusations that we who stand condemned by the just accusations of the court of heaven might have a Savior. I trust this morning that something might happen in this place that happened on a dusty road in the wilderness area of Palestine as recorded in the 8th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And it struck me in my own meditation upon this passage that in the incident of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch as he was making his way from Jerusalem back home and was riding along in the desert place, the Spirit of God moved and empowered Philip, the evangelist, to run up alongside of this man's chariot. And he finds him in 
his chariot reading from a scroll on which is copied the prophecy of Isaiah. And do you know what passage he's reading? The very moment that Philip makes this providential rendezvous with him? Look at Acts 8, 32. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was reading from the very text upon which we're meditating this morning. And then he asked Philip the evangelist a question, verse 34. I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? What a wonderful question to be asked. And what did Philip do? It says, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to him. Oh, what a text from which to launch into a sermon about Jesus. Now, for any of you here this morning who are strangers to grace, strangers to Jesus Christ, you may not be in a chariot at this moment. And you may not have been reading this text this morning. But oh, could it be that your being in this place today and by taking this text and seeking in these few moments to press it home upon your conscience that I might, like Philip, preach Jesus to you. And that you, like the Ethiopian eunuch, would come to see, yes, in the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, is my only hope of life and salvation. For as Philip opened his mouth and beginning from the scripture preached Jesus to him, as they went on their way, they came to a place where there was water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? He was saying, I've come to faith. I've come to see that the prophet was not speaking of himself. He was speaking of the suffering servant. And Philip, you've preached Jesus unto me. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus born of the virgin. Jesus of Nazareth who went about doing good, healing the sick, raising the dead. God's well-attested Messiah. You've spoken to me. Of Jesus of Nazareth, of his rejection, his suffering, his death, his resurrection from the dead, and on the ground of his person and work, God offering to all men indiscriminately forgiveness of sin and newness of life. I do embrace this, Jesus. Here is water. What hinders me? from declaring the inward change of my heart and the outward sacrament instituted of God. What hinders me from declaring that? And then you know the rest of the story, how Philip baptized him. And then Philip, having done his work, 
the Spirit of God catches him away. With reference to any among us who sit here this morning and are not saved, may I seek to point you, albeit feebly and imperfectly, to this one who, though oppressed, opened not his mouth as a sheep led to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent so he opened not his mouth why did he undergo all of these indignities he said do you not think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels oh how the angels would have leaped to the task to come with fiery swords and destroy all of our Lord's enemies. But he did not ask for them. Why? Because in his silence, he was saying, I am submissive to the will of my Father, and I am determined to do what I must do and what I alone can do. To save out of verse vast humanity out of every kindred, tribe, and tongue, and people, a people for myself. And so the silent, willing submission of the Lord Jesus secures our redemption. My unconverted friend, man, woman, boy, girl, whatever your past has been, whatever your present is, do you see That in Jesus, and in Jesus alone, there is a Savior who is perfectly suited to all of your needs. He opened not his mouth so that as Isaiah's suffering servant, he might open the door of heaven to all who will but run to him in faith. Let's pray.